Okay, got me now? Okay, so there we go. Maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. So I just got off two weeks of vacation and I learned a few things when I was resting. And that is I don't do it well. <laughs> I spent about three quarters of my vacation time here building and painting and I loved it. I actually got rest out of it. Dave understands. Dave gets me. And he says, it's a change. And he's right. But the truth is, I actually don't do rest well. And I spoke on rest three weeks ago. And, I, and I've been thinking about this and, about, and through my vacation and, and, and kind of reflecting, God, what is it you want me to learn in this period of time? And I learned three things during my rest period, other than I don't do it well. I took my very first day of vacation that I wasn't actually here doing something, and I thought, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to flip on Facebook. And I grab my phone, and I hit the Facebook app, and up pops up this wonderful message that says, congratulations on your 27th anniversary. And I went, <gasps> I learned I was so frazzled that I had forgotten my anniversary. But the only thing that saved me is that when I went up to Karen and sheepishly said, happy anniversary, sweetheart, she looked at me and went, <gasps> because she had forgotten our anniversary too, which totally got me off the hook. But I had to confess that it was Facebook that reminded me, so I didn't hold it over her that she had forgotten. So I learned that I'm actually an honest person, which is a good thing. I also learned I have a warped sense of humor through my vacation. I went to a park in British Columbia and they had these most amazing pit toilets. BC knows how to pee, let me tell you. The, the pit toilet, man, it was remarkable. And there was this sign on the back that said, leave the seat down in order to control order. And of course, my warped sense of humor says, well, how is my pee going to get in the hole? I love that I look like an old Navy employee. I love that I project this image of cool and hip and young. And my son just vomited in his mask. That's what I learned on vacation. So I should take vacations more often because I learned some really great stuff. Can you plug me back in again? I also learned that it's good to rest. You see, we're in an extremely disorienting time. We continue to struggle. Am I live on this one? Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. We have, we have entered a new mass mandate. And, and, and the level of anxiety skyrocketed. Nothing has changed. From, from, from Friday to Saturday, nothing changed. But because of a decision for us to put masks on, our entire society panicked. And our anxiety skyrocketed once again. We live in a distracting and disorienting time. Now this is the Labor Day weekend, and so I have to preach on work. It's obligated. But the truth is, 
I would probably preach on work today anyways because it's in our workplaces that we feel most of what's going on. If we're currently struggling with employment, we are feeling it. If we are retired, we are feeling it. If we are working in various roles around the community, we are feeling the disorientation and the disruption like we haven't felt before. Somehow, this one for me feels different. You see, the first time we all banded together, we were banging pots at 7 o'clock at night, and we were in this as a community. The second time we had to lock down, we didn't feel so connected, and we started to see the edges frazzle and the separation of our society. The third time we locked down, we started to actually fight with one another. And this time, this time I have no idea what to expect. Because I think some provinces will lock down and some provinces won't. And I think some of us are going to want to go home and isolate. And some of us are going to want to say this is a hoax. And none of this is helpful. And it's especially not helpful in the midst of our work. And so this morning, I I just want to look at what God has to say about work. And it doesn't matter where you are, if you're retired, if you're gainfully employed, if you're struggling with work, if you're unemployed, if you're underemployed, whatever your story is, we all work. Some of it's paid, some of it's unpaid, but we all have things that we have to do. And it affects us deeply when we have all these restrictions on us, all these emotions on us, all this heightened anxiety, and it's killing us from the inside. And you start talking about work right here in Exodus 20. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Work starts with rest. The first day of the week is today. It's the Sabbath day. It's the day God called us to give up our control, hand it to Him, and say, It is yours, Lord. And so I'm going to start my week not by going into a frenetic desire to control what's happening in my life, but actually letting it go and letting God be God. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you remember nothing else this morning, remember two things. That pit toilets in British Columbia are awesome and that God is in control. Don't remember the first one. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. Pay attention to that. Ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. You see, we turned it around. We put that day first. Because our ancestors, those who went before us, recognized the importance of And that this wasn't something we tacked on to the end of our week. This is something we put at the beginning of our week. 
so that it guides us, shapes us, molds us, holds us focused on what's actually important. Because six days you shall do your ordinary work. I've said this before, I'm going to depress you again. It's about 80,000 hours that the average person spends in their workplace in a lifetime. Sitting where you are right now, it's only about 8,000 hours. You will spend about 8,000 hours listening to me blabber on and 80,000 hours obeying a boss who you can't stand. This is why I think this is most important for us to pay attention to. Six days to work, one to rest. Six days for ordinary work, one for Sabbath. Six days you shall abode. That's the Hebrew word. Pay attention to that. And one day you will sabbat. Six days you shall work. One day you shall rest. The word abode gives us everything we need to know about this. Because it's translated in Hebrew in the scriptures multiple ways. The first is work, labor, servant, slavery, all those things related to workplace engagement. And it is also connected to the work of the priests and it is translated as worship in other places in scripture. You see, the Hebrew people understood that the six days of ordinary work was not something separated from God. It was our focus worshiping God in our ordinary times. We could actually say it this way. Six days you shall worship God, and on the seventh you shall worship Him too. If we just worship God, most of our problems would probably just evaporate because our perspective would be on Him and not on the world. Next week, I'm going to be talking about Peter, and I love Peter. I love the story of him getting out of the boat and walking on the water and then sinking because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Peter, I've said this before, I feel so much like him. Impetuous and impatient and think I know what's going on, and then Jesus has to say, get behind me because you're out in front of me and I didn't want to go that way. And he patiently sits and waits for me to realize that I've gotten on ahead and I have to actually sheepishly come back and get behind him again. Six days you shall worship God in the ordinary time and one day you shall give it to him and rest because that reorients our perspective. You see, work is changing. COVID has disrupted us. It has disrupted something that was already in disruption. 45% of Albertans right now, according to statistics, want to quit their jobs. Just ask a teacher or a nurse right now. Some of you may even want to quit. Some of you may be right now thinking there's got to be something better than this. Some of you even went so far as to have a baby so you could get out of work. <laughs> I'm not talking about anyone in the room. You see, some of us are struggling. I'll make this really personal for me. Barner Research Group says that right now, 29% of pastors are considering quitting. 
Now, I'm not talking about leaving their church and going to another church. That number's skyrocketing high right now. I'm talking about leaving pastoral ministry. If a third of pastors are weighed down and don't want to do the work they've been called to do anymore, where did we get? How did we find ourselves here? When did we take our eyes off of Jesus and stop believing that he has something for us in these awfully disruptive times? It was a struggle pre-pandemic, and it remains a struggle today. So how are we to respond? I want to pop us back two weeks to Kevin. Kevin brought us to -to face-to-face with Job. And Job is this fascinating character study. Because as Kevin reminded us, Job was in the eyes of God someone to be proud of. God bragged to the accuser how good Job was. But you see, one of the things that we don't obviously see is that where God allowed the accuser to disrupt Job was in his workplace. It is familiar to us that Job was this righteous man who suffered unjustly, but the truth is Job is a person who put his faith into God, before God, in God, in the most extreme of moments, in the most difficult of times. So Satan comes. We don't actually know if this is the same Satan that's mentioned in the New Testament. We can't put our New Testament lens on and think this is an evil interaction. There's nothing in this scripture that says this individual was doing something untoward. He was just coming into the heavenly council and he was just saying, hey, what are you doing? And he says to God, oh, I've just been hanging out, doing my job. He's like the prosecutor. He has that role in the justice system of God. And God says, hey, have you seen my buddy Job? And he goes, yeah, but. And so God allows him to be deeply, deeply impacted. So one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. And one by one by one, Job's life becomes completely dismantled. He loses everything. He says, I came naked from my mother's womb. And I will be naked when I leave. We won't read this this morning because we're going to run out of time. But you could go to the story. Go to chapter 1. And read just what Job endures. And it finishes saying, In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. If I lost my family, if I lost my job... If I lost my health, I don't know, I might actually start to put some blame somewhere. Job doesn't. You see, Job recognizes that in God I find my hope. 
And the problem is, when pain comes, when times are hard, when we're passed over for promotion, when we lose a job, when we become chronically ill, when we lose people we love, when things start going wrong and I've got to put a mask on again, begin to blame God. See, the fundamental thing I think that we need to remember here is in Job, he saw his blessings were from his creator. We see that in the pattern of his life where he would give sacrifices. He even went so far as to give sacrifices for his kids just in case they did something wrong. This was a righteous man. He knew his blessings came from God. It would be reasonable for him to ask, why is God punishing me now? But you see what makes Job such a fascinating case study is that while he knew that God had blessed him, he never felt it was because he deserved it. Which meant that when he knew that it was God that was allowing him to struggle, allowing him to experience this amazing loss, allowing him to go into the absolute deepest and darkest valley, he never thought it was because that's what I deserve. Do you get that? You don't deserve the blessings that you're getting. You also don't deserve the struggles. God is God and will do what he pleases. And Job never understood. Job didn't have the book of Job to look at. He didn't know what was going on in the heavenly council. He didn't have all those wonderful stories. He never saw how much his friends were screwing up. Well, neither do we. We can see Job, but there isn't the book of Gwen. There isn't a description of life for any of us yet. One day I believe there will. One day we'll look and Jesus will unpack the story for us. And we're going to go, oh. But until then, we just got to be happy that people left the seat down so the toilet doesn't smell. We got to be happy that Facebook reminded me it was my anniversary. And then convicted me when I tried to lord it over my wife. We look at the lens of the future. If we're stuck in the moment, if we're stuck in the now, if we're stuck in this place where we are right now, and we don't see that the story isn't finished yet, then we get mired down in the moments of today. And I am guilty of it. This is not me standing up here and saying, how dare you, you ought to do better. I'm saying, I do this. I think we all do this. Job understood the balance. He understood that God is doing something and we don't always see why. I was praying with some other pastors from the fort this week. And I I don't want to insult my colleagues. But it was clear that I was the only one who who got this. Like, what if we have to wear masks so that others might come to see Christ face to face? Man, if if my wearing a mask is going to bring someone to Jesus, give me the mask. If my getting COVID is going to bring someone to Jesus, give me COVID. 
If my death is going to bring someone to Jesus, bring it on. Because it's all that matters, but we don't always see it that way. We don't always do what Job says and let God be God. And so let's try to live the story. I started with rest three weeks ago. And the culture of rest is leisure and relaxation, where the Bible roots are rest in the action of God. Sabbath moves us away from the conception of entertainment and moves us into focusing on Jesus. It is escape rather than preparation for in the eyes of the world. And God is saying, six days you shall worship me in the ordinary time. And one day you will give it all up and focus on me so that you can continue to do the ordinary time with your eyes in the right place. It's rooting ourselves within this rhythm that God has created. I want to go back to Kevin for a moment. Kevin reminded us of these traits that made God proud of Job. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man on the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Blameless, complete integrity, fear of God and avoidance of evil. These are disciplines. These are the traits of a disciple. And I think that if we take those into our workplaces... I think that's a huge answer to what it means to live worshipfully in the ordinary time. You see, faith in God may come in at an instant for you and me. But integrity is formed over a lifetime. And the 80,000 hours of our work is a lifetime commitment. And so as we consider our own work, what are the ways where we can remain blameless? What are the ways that we can show integrity? How do I put God first when I am working, paid or unpaid? How do I avoid ethical lapses and wrongdoing? Name it. Figure it out. Think about your work and actually journal this stuff. So that when it comes to you, when you're faced with making those decisions, you've already practiced what you're going to do. So that Job, when he faced the deep, deep struggle, his practices, his disciplines, his discipleship in God formed him so that in the moment he had to make the most important decision of his life, he knew how to make it right. You see, it's control versus trust in doing what God wants us to do. And in getting very practical now, our work, honestly, is a pale imitation of God's. It's never as wild or awesome or worthy. And if we can remember that, I can let go. So if I preach a mediocre sermon, it's okay. Jesus would do a better job but I can still do a mediocre sermon with integrity because it's never meant to be about me. Kevin prayed that you would hear his words, not mine. I pray that every day. Our work is limited. We do not have absolute control over creation. It's okay that things don't go the way we want them to go. 
When I'm talking to our key volunteers and our staff, there's moments where frustration creeps up because things aren't going the way we hoped that they would go. People aren't responding the way we hoped that they would respond. Well, of course they're not. We're not God. Can we be okay in that ambiguity? Because I don't have absolute control over you. Turns out, I strike you more as a old Navy employee than I do a pastor. So anything I say to you, you go, yeah, I'll buy that. But you have a larger size. Do you hear that? Our daily work is not about us. It's not for my development, my improvement, my self-indulgence. Man, pastors, we forget that a lot. We want to build the kingdom. We just don't know whose. It is constantly something that when I remember that my work is for God and His pleasure alone, and God takes pleasure when I worship upwardly and love outwardly, and that's the rhythm. How do we do that in our workplaces? I think that is such a huge question. Now I want to take us to last week. If you haven't listened to Jen's message, I would encourage you to go online and hear it. If you have listened to Jen's message and you weren't moved emotionally, you are dead inside. I was listening to her message, lying in bed, listening to the podcast, and (laughs) I kept carrying awake because I was just bouncing, right? I mean, just her message is so powerful. Our work is testimony. You see, it's one of the areas where I think our faith is on greatest display. Because when I don't get it right at work, it sticks out like a sore thumb, especially if somebody knows I'm a believer. Janet prompted us to see testimony not as a singular event, but as a series of events in our lives, 80,000 hours worth of events where the character of God is revealed by evidence through our actions and through our life in the workplace. The little moments where our testimony bursts through because we do something spectacularly ordinary. But it's worship. You get that? It points to Jesus. And sometimes I will be the only one who believes. Sometimes I'm going to have to stand firm against the ethical quandary. Sometimes it won't make any sense what's happening to me in my workplace when it feels like, God, I'm the only one. And we have our Elijah moment. And God says, no, I've got 400 faithful. Those moments when we think no one is noticing when it doesn't make sense, and we speak to our experience, and we hold fast to what God wants for us, and we testify the goodness in our lives, and look for those little opportunities to share faith in everyday moments, sometimes with words, sometimes with actions, but always with a sense of having Christ front and center. That is testimony. And God can use each and every one of us. I loved this 
when Jen said there's power in our stories, even when they are messy. I have a messy story. You know some of it. And our work, paid or otherwise, can be amongst the messiest things that we experience in life. We live in disorienting and distracting times, but there is so much hope. I remember my spiritual formation professor, Paul Beckingham. Paul's story is a profound story of work going sideways. And yet, holding on to hope. Paul was a Canadian Baptist Ministries missionary serving in Nairobi, Kenya. And his vehicle was hit by this large troop carrier. Smashed the vehicle. Left Paul with a traumatic brain injury. He could no longer serve on the field. He spent years in rehabilitation. Worked his way back to being a an adjunct professor at Cary Theological College, really couldn't do that well either and ultimately lost his role there. Ended up being a chaplain in the military and was brilliant. But you see, Paul talks about prayer. And he looked at me, he says, Dwayne, pray without ceasing. This is a man whose life had been just tragically disrupted. He was never the same again. I hear he was brilliant before he was hit by that transport. And he struggled to find words. He said, Dwayne, pray without ceasing. And I said, Dr. Beckingham, how do you do that? And he said, Dwayne, your life has to be a prayer. It changed everything for me. It has shaped the way I do ministry. It is the shaped the way I live my life. It has shaped how I am a father, a husband, a friend, an employee, an employer, a member of our society. I want my life every single moment to be a prayer. And that is what I want for my work. And it's what I want for yours as well. You see, my hope for you at the end of it all is that your work will become a prayer for God and for yourself. That you would live a discipled life in the 80,000 hours and beyond if you're retired. And that your life would be a testimony and speak to the goodness of Jesus Christ no matter the season that you're in. So as we enter the new season of masks, as we face potential lockdowns again, as we see disruption and disorientation in our society because of a disease that we don't all agree on, may we agree on this. Our lives serve the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and we can make a difference in the life of another simply by doing our work as worship. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for work. I'm grateful for my work here. Lord, for the privilege that I have to be the pastor in this place
for the good things that come from our work. Meaning, companionship, financial reward. Thank you for all those things. Lord, I thank you and I thank this church for that privilege. Lord, I pray that my work would be a testimony to every person listening right now. I pray that I would live the life of a disciple no matter the season that we're in. That, Lord, if you choose to take everybody away, I will remain faithful. If you choose to bring everybody back, I will remain faithful. Lord, I pray my life would be a prayer. And I humbly ask that for every person listening right now. Lord Jesus, you are good. It is because of you we can even do our work. Lord, I pray you would give us the courage to live out that faithfulness in this season of disruption and disorientation. Because Lord, it is my hope, my sincere hope, my only driving goal that everyone in this church would one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So Lord, as we approach your table, I pray we would remember the gift that allows us to worship in the ordinary times and worship in that one special day. Lord, we love you. We want our lives to glorify you. And we ask, Lord, as we come to you this morning, that you would be present, that you'd be pleased, and you'd be blessed. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.